everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Kid Chameleon, a platforming title developed and published by Sega and released for the Sega Genesis console back in 1992. We're going to look at that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 75 I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you. And there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We have weekly challenges. We have monthly challenges. We have prizes. If that sounds like a good time, check us out over on Discord. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash today. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, including a Patreon-exclusive bi-weekly podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout-out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewal, David Morton, and Sam Chardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star counts or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you give them a go, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really worthwhile experiences, and I still highly encourage you to check those out today. 
Beyond the golden oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They might have aged a little bit, might have had a couple issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these to the broad gaming population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Kid Chameleon. Alien is a platforming title developed and published by Sega and released for the Sega Genesis console back in 1992. Before we can talk about Kid Chameleon, we have to take a look back at the state of the platforming genre in the early 90s, and by extension, the formation of the Sega Technical Institute, or STI, which was the group ultimately responsible for developing Kid Chameleon, along with several other platformers in the 90s. First, though, we're going to take a look at some of the popular platforming titles in the early 90s, and we're going to start with arguably the biggest of them all, Mario. The Super Mario Bros. series likely needs no introduction, but just to provide a bit of background. The original Super Mario Bros. was created by legendary game designer Shigeru Miyamoto and was intended to reflect the absolute state-of-the-art in 8-bit game design, at least as far as 1985 game development was concerned. Developed concurrently with The Legend of Zelda, Super Mario Bros. would represent the pinnacle of platforming design for the time period in which it was created, and would effectively define the framework for the genre from that point forward. Super Mario wasn't the first platformer, not by a long shot. That distinction is widely given to Donkey Kong, another Miyamoto and Nintendo creation that had released to arcades four years prior in 1981. And sure, while Donkey Kong may have been one of the first games to implement a number of the common themes we see in platforming titles even today, like jumping around different stages and over various obstacles, the arcade game Space Panic by Universal preceded Donkey Kong by a year, and is considered by some to be the first true platforming title. In that one, you traverse a multi-layered level, climbing ladders to progress from one platform to another, all the while being chased by enemies that you need to trap by digging holes in the various platforms you're moving around on. While there is no jumping in that title, the literal concept of platforming, that is, moving around on platforms, likely can trace its origins to that title. And in fact, the platforming graphics and ladders in the game have more than a passing resemblance to Donkey Kong, albeit without DK's signature sloped floors and level variety. Interestingly, before platformers were known as, well, platformers, games like Space Panic were known as climbing games, and Space Panic was effectively the first of its type in that particular subgenre of gaming. 
Regardless of whether you personally consider Donkey Kong or Space Panic to be the first platforming title, there is one distinction we need to make, and that is the fact that many games released in the early 80s were single-screen affairs, meaning there was no smooth horizontal or vertical scrolling. There were games that had multiple screen worlds, but traversing from one screen to the next was effectively similar to The Legend of Zelda, where as you approach the side of the screen, the next screen is loaded. The concept of a platforming title containing smooth horizontal scrolling is typically traced back to an arcade title called Pac-Land, a 1984 arcade game developed by Namco and starring, as you might have guessed, Pac-Man, given the game's title. In fact, Pac-Land has been cited as being a major inspiration on the creation of the original Super Mario Bros., which, like we said, refined the side-scrolling platforming title into the genre we know today. But, even that history is a little bit off, because the first instance of a smooth side-scrolling platform title wasn't Pac-Land in 1984, but was instead Jump Bug, a 1981 arcade title developed by a company called Alpha Denshi Corporation, which is likely better known under its more modern name, ADK, a frequent publisher and developer of Neo Geo titles later in the 90s. Back in 1981, though... Alpha Denshi Corporation was working on their latest title, Jump Bug, which was set to take the arcade world by storm. For the first time, a player could control a character, so to speak, who could jump from building top to building top, all the while the background and foreground scrolled smoothly, representing a continuous world rather than the typical for the time single-screen gameplay mechanics. This was, as you might imagine, a revolutionary development, though it wouldn't receive a ton of widespread acclaim or recognition, which is why not many people talk about Jump Bug when they discuss the history of early platforming titles. Regardless of that historical omission, the fact is that the original Super Mario Bros. was the game that put platformers on the map and would popularize the genre, spawning a number of imitators and innovators who tried their hand at creating their own platforming games. A number of those games would begin to introduce new features into the platforming genre, such as level selection screens, more advanced power-up systems, and more enemy variety, including, for some games, boss fights more deep than the original Mario's avoid Bowser and drop him into a mode of lava kind of gameplay. Despite various companies contributing to the platformer genre, the Super Mario Bros. series would remain a standout and would itself introduce tons of innovations and mechanics that continued to define and redefine platforming titles to come. Around the beginning of the 90s, the latest Mario adventure was Super Mario World, the 16-bit Super Famicom launch title that would introduce a gigantic open-world map for players to explore, including levels with secret exits and hidden pathways, a number of power-ups that served to extend functionality beyond those introduced in Super Mario Bros. 3, and a huge variety of level types that always kept the game feeling fresh. Super Mario World was also massive in scope, with over 70 impressive levels spread across its game world. Luckily for everyone, the game included a save system where, after you beat certain levels, you were given the option to save your progress. This was almost a necessity given the size of the game, and the amount of time it would take the typical player to beat the game, and as Nintendo's first 16-bit platforming title, they knew they needed to do everything they could to make the game appeal to the broader gaming population including those individuals who may not have eight straight hours to play video games. And judging by the fact that Super Mario World is widely considered to be one of the best platforming titles of all time, I would say Nintendo hit the mark with their design. Mario wasn't the only platforming title in town, though. And in fact, 1991 saw the introduction of Mario's stiffest competition to date, that being the blue-haired speed demon Sonic the Hedgehog. 
Sonic the Hedgehog was created as an extension of the Mario formula, with a focus on expanding on the things that Mario did well, while introducing a series of innovations beyond what Nintendo's typical platforming titles implemented, the most significant of which was Sonic's insane speed, which allowed him to speed through levels at a rate previously unseen in gaming. That speed was the brainchild of Sega programmer Yuji Naka. Naka was a huge fan of the Mario series, but he always thought that there was one major issue with the game's design. Naka believed Mario moved too slowly, and when he sat down to begin prototyping his version of a platforming title, he was resolved to create an experience that was much quicker paced than any of Nintendo's offerings. To do that, he decided to make Sonic's base movement speed equivalent to Mario when running at top speed, and then pushed Sonic's velocity higher from there. Early prototypes for the game were so fast, in fact, that the Genesis literally couldn't contain Sonic within the game world, and he would often break through barriers, effectively telling all of the collision detection routines programmed for the title to take the week off while he ran rampant around the game. Naka ultimately slowed Sonic down just a little bit and improved those collision detection routines to better keep Sonic on the straight and narrow, or more precisely, the winding and looping pathways in the game. The end result of that effort was a title that, for the first time since the mid-80s, propelled a company other than Nintendo to the top of the console sales charts. Sonic gave Sega the competitive edge over Nintendo and effectively kicked off the infamous console wars of the 90s. While we focused on arguably the biggest platforming series of the time, namely Mario and Sonic, there were a ton of other games that also deserve some mention. You have titles like Bonk's Adventure, which was the TurboGrafx-16's answer to Mario, and would impress gamers with the sheer size and detail of its pixel graphics and characters. You had other platforming titles on Nintendo platforms, like Hudson's Adventure Island, which represented a more challenging take on the traditional Mario formula, with a decidedly tropical flair. You also had a number of computer platformers, like id Software's Commander Keen series, which itself was one of the first computer titles to implement smooth, horizontally scrolling levels, as well as Apogee's Duke Nukem and Epic's Jill of the Jungle. While all of these games had their own features and challenges, they all had one thing in common. They represented the state-of-the-art in video game platformers, at least for the respective consoles or computer platforms on which they existed. For now, we're going to put aside computer platforming titles, because those games were admittedly a bit behind their console brethren. That's not to disparage those titles, because I believe they were, in most cases, awesome. But the fact is, if you wanted to play the true latest and greatest platforming action, home consoles were where it was at. And if you're going to play one of those games on your home console of choice, you can almost guarantee that the game you were playing was designed and developed in Japan. Because, as I believe many individuals know, the video game console market of the 90s was dominated by Japanese companies, and the major console manufacturers of the time, namely Nintendo, Sega, and NEC, were all Japan-based companies who primarily employed Japanese designers and developers. I mention this only to say that the American game development scene was not nearly as pervasive or developed as the Japanese video game industry, and many titles released in North America were simply localized titles that originated in Japan. Most of the time, that worked just fine, as localization crews with extensive experience were able to bridge the gap between the cultural differences of Japan and whatever geographic region their game was going to release in, and we've talked a bit about the localization process in prior podcast episodes. To provide a bit of a refresher, when we talk about localization, 
We're referring to not just the act of translating text from one language to another, but also reworking some of the cultural references, comedy, and jokes, and other game elements that might resonate with one group or geographic region, but not another. Localization sounds simple, but it can be incredibly complex, and to achieve an end result that feels like it meshes with a certain culture, even if it originated with another, is a true art form. That being said, in the early 90s, there was a growing sentiment amongst larger video game companies to do more than simply localize their titles for the American market. There was a desire to actually stand up American game development teams to create games that would, hopefully, appeal more directly to the American gaming population. One of those companies working to stand up a more structured group of American-based developers was none other than Sega. Before we can talk about Sega's American developer efforts, though, we have to take a step back and talk about an incredibly influential figure in video game history, that being game designer and industry veteran Mark Cerny. When Mark Cerny was young, he developed a passion for both arcade games and computer programming, and that passion would eventually lead to him dropping out of college to pursue a job opportunity with Atari in 1982, which at the time was the video game company to work for. After joining Atari, Cerny was assigned to their arcade games division and would begin by providing programming and game design support for a number of Atari titles, the most prominent of which was likely the arcade shooter Millipede, the sequel to the classic arcade title Centipede. Cerny's big break, though, would come in 1984, which is when he had the opportunity to both design and develop his own arcade title. That game, Marble Madness, involved navigating a marble through a series of courses with various obstacles to avoid, ramps to roll down, and precarious paths to navigate, all of which would serve to create an experience that many gamers remember even to this day. With that success, and shortly after Marble Madness's release, Cerny would draw the attention of Sega, who in 1985 was in the process of preparing for their latest console release, the 8-bit Sega Master System. Sega knew that they needed to have a strong launch lineup to compete with the juggernaut that was the Nintendo Famicom, so Sega's then-president, Hayao Nakayama, reached out to Cerny directly and persuaded him to come work for the company, with the goal of utilizing his talents to design and develop launch titles for the Master System. Cerny decided to take Sega up on their offer, which led to him moving to Japan to work more closely with the core team. What started as a six-month engagement ballooned into a three-year long-term deployment, with Cerny contributing to a number of different games, while also assisting with the hardware design and engineering for the SegaScope 3D glasses, an early set of 3D goggles designed for use with the Sega Master System that, ultimately, failed to gain any traction beyond the eight games it officially supported. Despite that hardware failure, Cerny remained a valued member of the Sega team, though as the 90s approached, Cerny began longing to return home to the United States. He enjoyed the work he was doing at Sega, but his extended assignment in Japan was starting to take a toll on him. At the same time, Sega of America CEO Michael Katz, along with Sega Executive Vice President Shinobu Toyota, had begun to strategize about how to create games that would have a stronger appeal to American gamers. Like we talked about earlier, many games of the time originated from Japan and were localized for American audiences. There were very few games from the major console manufacturers that were actually developed for non-Japanese gamers. To help address this gap, discussions began evaluating the potential stand-up of a true American development division, with the goal of designing and releasing games that would more directly appeal to American consumers. 
This led to Sega of Japan identifying 11 young, eager, and experienced game developers and designers to send over to America, after which that core development team would be augmented with dedicated American staff, effectively creating an America-centric development team with a mix of proven talent and American cultural knowledge. There was just one problem. In order for non-U.S. citizens to work for an extended period of time in the United States, a formal document called a visa is required, and Sega of Japan ended up submitting an invalid visa justification for their 11-person development team, and the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo not only rejected the visa request, but also banned Sega of Japan from applying for new visas for a period of time. With Sega's plans now completely ruined, they decided on an alternative— Sega would send Mark Cerny back to the United States, and he would be the person responsible for hiring an American development team effectively separate from Sega of Japan's direct influence on staffing. Cerny leapt at the opportunity, as that would allow him to achieve his goal of returning home to the United States. So in 1990, Cerny made his way back to the U.S. and founded the Sega Technical Institute, or STI. With STI now stood up, at least in concept, attention turned to what project to work on as their first effort. Now, at this point, the company only had two full-time staff positions, Mark Cerny as the head of the organization and veteran game designer Yutaka Sugano, who had previously created the Sega arcade title Shinobi and was conveniently already authorized to work in the United States. Regardless, STI began seeking out new game opportunities, eventually acquiring the license for a game based on the recently released action film Dick Tracy, which was itself based on a comic strip from the 1930s. With that license in hand, STI began working on the title, hiring additional American staff, as well as leveraging Japanese artists to eventually bring it to life, and in 1991, the game would release on both Sega Genesis and Sega Master System. Dick Tracy was an interesting title, as it included both side-scrolling action, as well as a mechanic whereby you could shoot into the background of the environment to defeat enemies that were situated deeper in the scene. As an example, suppose you're controlling Dick Tracy, and you're moving to the right side of the screen, defeating enemies along the way. The background for the scene might show a street and a bunch of buildings across the street where additional enemies would spawn, requiring you to shoot them before getting shot yourself. This depth-driven gameplay created a pseudo-3D kind of effect that was, for its time, pretty revolutionary, and certainly different than the majority of games released in the early 90s. The only issue was, despite that innovative gameplay mechanic, the game simply would not sell well upon its release, which many people attributed to the fact that the game came out a full eight months after the movie's initial theatrical release, and two months after its release on home video cassette. Put simply, timing was not kind to the Dick Tracy game, and by the time it made its way to market, interest in the movie had waned to the point that many people decided to skip the game entirely. So, STI's first game was not exactly a hit, but while the company was creating Dick Tracy in 1990, another idea arose that the team believed had merit. What if, for one of STI's first titles, they could create an action platformer for the Sega Genesis that would hopefully compete with Mario and other popular platforming titles? The thought process was, the Sega Genesis didn't really have much in the way of platforming titles back in 1990, and Sonic the Hedgehog was still a year away from release, though STI certainly had knowledge that it was coming. There wasn't a ton of discussion about the content for their platforming action game, other than thinking it was an idea to revisit in the future, so the team decided to refocus their efforts on getting Dick Tracy ready for release. After Dick Tracy was completed, the team revisited their action platform idea and decided that their second game would take that idea and turn it into a full-fledged game. The only question was, 
how would that idea manifest itself into a game that was distinct from its peers while still adhering to the core reason why STI existed, which was to create games designed for the American market? The first order of business was to assign staff to the title, which Mark Cerny decided early on would be comprised solely of American developers and designers. Collectively, they came up with a concept involving a rogue virtual reality artificial intelligence program that would abduct unsuspecting players, slowly plotting to take over the entire world. To thwart that rogue AI, a lone boy by the name of Casey decided to take it upon himself to enter the game world and hopefully destroy the AI despot and return all of its captives to the waking world as opposed to a digital prison. Along the way, that boy would have access to a number of power-ups, which in the context of the game's world would be driven by the fact that he was in a digital game, allowing for situations that wouldn't make much sense in reality, but would certainly work in virtual reality. And that virtual reality landscape was intended to be massive, with over 100 different levels loosely connected to each other, and in some instances connected to other side paths via teleporters. The team had grand plans to make one of the biggest, most impressive platforming titles of all time, and their design, with a ridiculous number of levels, 10 different power-ups with their own mechanics and strengths, and a protagonist that could only be described as the most 90s version of a 90s kid ever, is what would eventually evolve into the game known as Kid Chameleon. Kid Chameleon, like I mentioned, was being designed to appeal to the American audience, and as a result, the main character's design was pretty much the stereotypical image of a 90s teen that you can imagine, and the best depiction of that character is seen on the game's box art. Let me paint you a picture. Casey, otherwise known as Kid Chameleon, is front and center on the game's box. He's wearing sunglasses and an open leather jacket, all the while crouching on a skateboard-like device, which was probably a hoverboard given one of the game's final power-ups, and donning cuffed jeans. Behind him on the game box are the various power-ups and forms he can assume in the game, all in a style that figuratively, and almost literally, screams early 90s. And actually, I have to say it, the front box art is actually freaking awesome, and is almost reminiscent of a teen action movie poster from around the same time. Seriously, pretty awesome work by the game's art team. Anyway, mild artistic appreciation tangent aside, the actual act of creating the game was the collective effort of 15 programmers, designers, and artists, and in a situation that I found interesting, the team utilized no version control while developing the title, which means mistakes, if they occurred, could be very costly. Version control, by the way, is the act of maintaining multiple versions of a piece of code or art asset or any other artifact associated with the creation of a collaborative work, like a video game. With version control, a developer can check out the latest version of a file, locking it until he or she is done with their updates, and then check it back in for others to continue to build on. Without version control, you could potentially have two or more people working on the same file, overriding each other's work as they save their version of the file back onto whatever shared network space was designated for use on the project. To put it simply, version control is pretty much a requirement anytime you're collaborating across a team of people, regardless of what you're actually collaborating on. The fact that the Kid Chameleon team was able to successfully deliver a game without any true version control is a testament to how well and closely the team worked together, which Mark Cerny has stated is due to the fact that he encouraged the team to hang out with each other in their spare time, allowing each person to get to know each other outside of work, which ultimately improved their collaborative relationships while in work. Whether that's true or not, or the team simply got lucky, the fact is they encountered very little in the way of contention or lost productivity due to collaboration issues, which means something, whatever that something was, had to be working right. Cerny, beyond being the head of STI, 
also became involved in the game's development, providing some programming support to bring Kid Chameleon to life. The game's director was a relatively new hire into STI, a man by the name of Graham Bayless. There isn't a ton written about Bayless from around this time, though some of you may think the name sounds familiar, which is likely because he's held a number of different roles in the video game industry throughout the years, including being a director at Sierra Online, the lead in front of the production teams for Crystal Dynamics, a vice president at 2K Games, and a current executive producer at NetherRealm Studios, where he was the producer responsible for creating Mortal Kombat 11. Bayless has had a pretty lucrative video game career, to say the least. Another interesting addition to the Kid Chameleon team was artist Yasushi Yamaguchi, who is probably less of a well-known name, but has a pretty big claim to fame. He was the artist who created the character of Tails for Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Obviously, the Kid Chameleon team had some real talent on it, and that talented group would eventually complete work on the title for a North American release in early 1992, with a Japanese localized port released a couple months later where it was known as Chameleon Kid. Over the years that followed, Kid Chameleon would be re-released a number of times in several different Sega Genesis game compilations, with its most recent release being an included title in the Sega Genesis software collection on the Nintendo Switch online service. Upon its release, Kid Chameleon was met with a strong positive critical response, with many publications comparing it favorably to top platformers like Sonic the Hedgehog and the Super Mario series. Many praised the game's graphic, sound, and power-up system, with most critiques focused on the fact that the game didn't have any sort of password or save system. We'll talk about my own opinion on the game in a couple minutes, but one thing I will say right now is that I 100% agree with the overwhelming critique that no ability to save progress is not a good thing with this game, because as we're going to talk about, this is one large, long platformer. Beyond the core video game, Kid Chameleon would also appear in several comic book series, though beyond that, Kid Chameleon appears to have been a one-hit wonder for Sega, as there would never be any talk of a sequel, and no team has attempted to revisit the original, short of including the game in various Sega game collections over the years. The Sega Technical Institute, and Mark Cerny in particular, would go on to achieve a certain level of fame in the video game industry. STI would end up continuing to develop games for the Sega Genesis through 1996, and specifically would be the development company behind Sonic the Hedgehog 2, 3, and Sonic and & Knuckles, along with being responsible for the well-regarded, at least in modern times, Comic Zone beat-em-up title. Altogether, STI would develop nine titles for the Genesis before it shut down, and as one of the first American-based development companies for a Japanese console partner, it would end up paving the way for a number of other similar groups to be founded. Mark Cerny would go on to have an incredibly influential career in the video game industry, and after leaving STI, would join Sony and ultimately be responsible for assisting with and designing pretty much every PlayStation console after the PS1's release. He'd also be responsible for finding and signing first-party developer contracts with two small studios back in 1996, Naughty Dog and Insomniac Games. While both companies have a wealth of history behind them, they have both remained incredibly successful, with Naughty Dog being behind the recent television adaptation of The Last of Us, and Insomniac just having released Sony-exclusive Spider-Man 2 late last year. Cerny himself remains active as Sony's lead console designer even today, with his most recent success being the creation and release of the PlayStation 5. He has achieved a number of industry honors, including multiple Hall of Fame inductions, owing largely to the fact that he has contributed to video games in nearly every way possible, from programming to game design to contractual partnerships to hardware engineering, and the list goes on. Suffice it to say, Cerny undoubtedly deserves the accolades he's received over the years. Kid Chameleon itself, though, is something of an enigma. 
While I wouldn't classify it as a forgotten title, it never really achieved the same success or recognition as many of its platformer competition. And despite a strong positive response when it was released, there have never been any efforts to revitalize the brand. Regardless, the fact is that Kid Chameleon remains an interesting and unique platforming experience, one that could only have been created by a creative and talented team of game designers, programmers, artists, and musicians. While it isn't quite as culturally significant as Mario or Sonic, Kid Chameleon remains a well-regarded title amongst many gamers, and as such, is certainly a game that deserves a spot in the annals of video game history. Now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Kid Chameleon today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So Kid Chameleon, in many ways, is a traditional two-dimensional platforming title where you control a singular character to run and jump through a number of side-scrolling and in some cases vertically oriented levels. What sets the game apart from its peers, though, is the way that it handles power-ups and the overall design of the game world. And in order to understand the former, we probably should first talk about the latter. Kid Chameleon, like many platformers, consists of a number of stages, each of which utilize a variety of different environments and themes. Looking across the various level types, you have icy caverns, sandy beaches, forests, grassy plains, hidden caves, and pretty much anything else you can think of that you've seen in a platforming title before. Which is to say, Kid Chameleon certainly has a diverse set of levels and environments. And that diversity is pretty much required in order to maintain interest in the game, because Kid Chameleon, more so than almost any other platforming title, is a long experience. And I mean a really long experience. There are well over 100 main levels in the game, along with a number of side levels known as elsewhere levels, which are effectively hidden stages that can be reached by using any number of teleporters that might exist in a given level. Those elsewhere levels are often more bite-sized stages than the more traditional main stages, and can sometimes lead to shortcuts, special power-ups, or additional continues in lives. Oftentimes, though, the elsewhere levels might lead you to paths that are dramatically more difficult than the main path through the game, and in some instances, those elsewhere levels might actually make you go backwards in your adventure, returning to stages that you otherwise already progressed past. That might sound a bit confusing, and that's because the world design for Kid Chameleon, and by that I mean the way levels are interconnected with each other, is perhaps the most confusing and downright baffling world design I have ever seen in a platforming title. To explain why that is, let's take a look at a contemporary platforming title, Super Mario World, and compare its world design with Kid Chameleon. In Super Mario World, you have a huge number of levels, with over 70 spread out over 9 worlds. Each of those levels may contain connections to one or more levels, and in some cases, levels may even contain secret exits that lead to otherwise blocked-off sections of the game world. 
There are a good number of secrets to find in Super Mario World, and the overall game world in that game is fairly expansive, but you always feel like you know where you are in the game. Regardless of how many levels might connect with another, or how many pathways you may need to traverse, you can always very clearly see where those paths lead, and as you march through the game's various overworld maps, indicators appear on the levels showing ones that you've completed, and ones you may still need to tackle. There is a lot to explore there, but that exploration always feels bounded. Kid Chameleon has absolutely no boundary to its world design, or better stated, it has no communicated boundary to its world design. You don't have an overworld map to show how levels connect with each other, and every single level can have a mind-boggling number of exits, consisting of both main path exits, which involves finding a flag at the end of the stage, or side path exits, which are typically associated with teleporters. The thing is, there is not one singular path through the game, and levels can flow into each other without you even knowing you've gotten to the next stage of the game. You know how in most platforming titles you see some sort of start screen when you enter a new level, perhaps with the name of the level or some indicator of progress like a 3-1 level label? Kid Chameleon doesn't really have that, or at least it doesn't have that in all instances, which makes making your way through the game a truly confusing affair. In fact, the only time a stage name appears on the screen is if you complete a level by finding the main path flag exit of a stage. If you exit a stage by accessing a teleporter, the associated linked stage simply loads on the screen without any indicator that you've changed stages. And because sometimes teleporters simply port you to a different section of the same stage that you're currently in, it is almost impossible to tell if you're making progress without playing the game extensively and understanding how the levels connect with one another. And even then, you'll likely find some hidden path you never saw before, which puts you on a completely different path that throws any mind map you may have constructed out the window. While Kid Chameleon's world and level connections are confusing, I can see the potential allure here, because the game really doesn't tell you where you are or hold your hand in any capacity, which opens the title up to being a mostly open-ended exploration-driven experience. And in concept, I love that idea. Where the idea falls flat is in the way the game handles saving your progress as you play the game. Which, simply put, there is no way of saving your progress as you play the game, which for platforming titles with a much more limited scope might be fine. And the fact is that many older platforming titles didn't have password systems or save mechanics either, forcing players to play through the game in one sitting, or gambling with leaving your console on overnight in the hopes that you don't lose power. The issue with Kid Chameleon is that the game is ridiculously long, and because you never really know how far you've progressed due to the complexity and convoluted design of its level connections, the lack of progress saving makes the whole experience feel less like a celebration of exploring a wide open world, and more like a punishment for not knowing the game well enough to progress along the defined critical path. If you spend the time to learn the game, you can eventually discover the best paths for progression. But really learning Kid Chameleon will take you countless hours, and I'm not entirely convinced all those hours are truly worth it. Luckily, the game does give you both several lives and continues in the event you fail at a stage. And also luckily, there are a ton of continue and extra life tokens peppered throughout almost every stage. That itself, however, proves to introduce another less-than-ideal design mechanic. And that is, in order to progress through the game you pretty much need to find as many continues and lives as possible. Otherwise, you'll likely die repeatedly to some tricky encounter or stage, which will force you to restart your adventure all the way back at the beginning of the game. 
games lacking Infinite Continues are fine. And there are tons of games we've already talked about in prior episodes that require you to increase your skill to even stand a chance at completing the title. And most of those games require repeated playthroughs in order to become proficient enough to finally beat the game. Look at a game like Contra. You have a couple lives and a few continues, and that's it. You need to take what the game gives you and either get good or die trying. Here's the thing, though. Contra has eight levels, all of which lead directly into each other. It's difficult, but understandable, and you can progress through all eight stages without a huge time commitment. Or take a look at Super Mario Bros. 3, a gargantuan NES platformer that had no save game mechanic or password system. Super Mario Bros. 3 had 90 levels, which isn't all that many less than Kid Chameleon. But Mario 3 had infinite continues, so you didn't technically need to lose significant progress if you got stuck on a particularly tough level. And let's say you needed to shut down your console. Mario 3 had a variety of warp areas that could let you skip ahead in the game without any appreciable handicap. With Kid Chameleon, you have no infinite continues, and you have a super long experience. But like I said, you can also grab a bunch of continues and extra lives hidden in various levels. So that does help to offset the finite continues thing a bit. And Kid Chameleon also has a couple of warps that can send you pretty far into the game, similar to Mario 3. But if you use those warps, which are a bit tricky to pull off, by the way, you're effectively handicapping yourself because you've just bypassed the early levels that are filled with continuing life tokens, setting yourself up for failure as soon as you reach the next major challenge in your playthrough. And let me tell you, the game does get pretty darn challenging, and some levels are true trial and error kinds of experiences that you need to play, die, and repeat multiple times before you can figure out how to get through it. Those retries eat up lives, which eventually eat up continues, which means you're even closer to needing to restart the whole game over again. There are also, by the way, dead ends in certain levels, which in this context means that there are certain sections of levels where you need a specific power-up in order to progress. If you don't have that power-up or you lose it because you took too much damage, then your only option is to die and restart the level which means you really do need to hoard your continues and lives as much as possible. And on the run where I finally beat the game, I think I picked up well over 30 continue tokens. In every playthrough, I started from the very beginning of the game because I knew I needed those continues to survive the game's later challenges. And I cannot say it was an entirely smooth or frustration-free experience. I should also mention that some of those continue and extra life tokens are so well hidden that you would likely not stumble upon them in a normal playthrough. The game's levels are peppered with power blocks, some of which contain a power-up, some of which contain diamonds, which is an energy currency of sort for your power-up, and some contain other useful items like extra lives and continues. There are also a number of hidden power blocks, some of which are useful, some of which are not, and some of which troll you by trapping you in an area that you can't escape from, like a Mario Kaizo level. Those hidden power blocks are oftentimes where the continues and extra lives hide, and to find enough to have a fair chance at completing the game in a reasonable amount of time, you pretty much need to use a guide, and I will freely admit that I used a guide to find as many continuing life tokens as possible. The game does give you the tools needed to be successful, but it hides those tools so well that you likely won't feel properly equipped unless you, like me, reference a guide for some assistance. One of the other tools the game gives you, which we haven't really talked about, are power-ups, which in Kid Chameleon are represented by different helmets that you can pick up in the game world. 
This is an aspect of the game that I actually find pretty innovative, as Kid Chameleon's power-ups are all distinct and provide you with a number of skills that are essential for traversing various levels. The nice thing here is that most levels have multiple paths you can take, each of which are tailored for a specific helmet that might be available in the level. So there is a good bit of variety at play here. And even the skills associated with those helmets are unique and varied. So let's talk about those real quick. In your base form, Kid Chameleon is simply Kid Chameleon, with your only real useful skill being your ability to jump on the heads of certain enemies to defeat them, as well as the ability to pull yourself up onto nearby ledges if you can't quite make your jump. Kid Chameleon only has a couple of hit points, and yes, by the way, each helmet you pick up has a different number of hit points before you lose that power-up and revert to Kid Chameleon's base form. It's an interesting system, the one that is prone to getting trapped if you lose your power-up at an inopportune time. Anyway, moving on from Kid Chameleon's base form, each subsequent power-up has a special maneuver associated with your C button, as well as a special diamond-powered move that you can execute by pressing A plus your start button. Putting aside the manual dexterity needed to hit A and start at the same time in the thick of battle, I never found any of the diamond-powered moves to be all that useful, and in fact, I only ever tried a few of them just to see what they did. They feel entirely unnecessary to the experience, but I suppose it's nice that they were included. So anyway, to go through the various forms you can find throughout your adventure, you have the Iron Knight, which can scale walls, Red Stealth, who's a ninja kind of character that can jump higher than other forms and also attacks downwards via a sword thrust reminiscent of Link's downward thrust from Super Smash Bros., the Berserker, who can literally run through breakable walls, Maniacs, a Jason Voorhees wannabe who throws axes as his main form of attack, the Juggernaut, which is a tank that can fire a barrage of bombs and also fit into some tight spaces since it is shorter than other power-ups, the Micromax, which is a small fly-like power-up that allows you to kick off of and scale walls, similar in some respects to Ryu Hayabusa's wall jump from Ninja Gaiden. The Iclops, which can use a power beam to unveil hidden blocks. The Sky Cutter, which is a hoverboard-based power-up that lets you fly through levels and use anti-gravity to flip yourself between traveling normally and flying upside down. And finally, Cyclone, which allows you to spin in a tornado-like motion and fly through the air, but otherwise has no additional offensive capabilities beyond the base Kid Chameleon form. That's a total of nine different power-ups, and each level usually gives you somewhere between two to four different power-ups to utilize as you traverse a level. And like I said, if a level gives you a power-up, there's a pretty good chance that there's a specific path through the level that's tailored for that power-up, especially in the later stages of the game. Which, honestly, is incredibly diverse and shows the care with which the game's designers constructed the game's levels. I actually think many of the game's levels are designed pretty well. My biggest issue is the number of levels in the game, the lack of progress saving, and the confusing way that levels are connected with each other. The individual levels themselves, for the most part, are diverse and interesting, though a few of those levels veer into ridiculous difficulty territory, which coupled with the finite continues you have available to you, can lead to some really frustrating situations. In one of my first playthroughs, I made it to a fairly late stage level with around 18 continues banked. The game was challenging, but I was doing pretty darn well. I reached a certain level, and I literally spent every single continue on that one stage, forcing me to restart at the beginning and try once again to progress, this time trying to bank even more continues to offset the sheer difficulty spike that certain levels introduce. It's not an offensive design, but it is a frustrating one. Before we move on, I should mention that there are actually four bosses in the game, serving as gatekeepers for each major chunk of levels. 
When you first encounter the bosses, you'll likely have some difficulty in understanding when to attack based on the patterns they're exhibiting, but they eventually become pretty easy to defeat. There's no real checkpoint for beating the bosses, and once you learn their moves, they're effectively a speed bump as opposed to a true challenge. But honestly, I kind of like the boss levels as a change of pace from the relentless quantity of pure platforming levels that the game throws at you. Special mention, by the way, goes out to the game's murder wall levels, where your goal is to outrun a spiked wall before it reaches and impales you. The first time you find yourself in a murder wall level, you will likely curse the heavens for forcing that particular hell upon you. But interestingly, once I played through them a few times, the murder levels became one of my favorite level types in the game. They're challenging, frantic-paced, and even with practice, they aren't a sure win. But when you do navigate the levels successfully you feel like an accomplished speedrunner. There are only three of these in the entire game, but when you encounter one, expect frustration to eventually pave the way to elation. I have more thoughts about the game, but I'll save those for the specific game sections we're about to talk about. Before we move on to those specific sections, though, we need to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles, how they tried to get you to buy the games in the stores. Around this time, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have YouTube to look up gameplay videos. We may have seen reviews in magazines, but otherwise we had no other information available to us to determine whether to buy a game other than looking at the box, seeing if the box looked cool and if the back of the box made the game sound appealing. So, for Kid Chameleon, for the Sega Genesis, the back of the box says, Wildside is the newest game in town. All the kids are wild to play it. It's a machine that surrounds you with flame-belching, body-snatching monsters. Step inside, and it's just you against the madness. It's fast, dangerous, and almost impossible to beat. One other thing, it's a kid-eater. Until Kid Chameleon takes charge. He bursts open blocks, finds helmets, and blam! He transforms into a brick-smashing berserker. Crunch! He's a buzzing Micromax, hacking maniacs, or jet-powered skycutter. By bashing blocks, he builds up superpowers for the monster mash ahead. Crabuloids, skull chompers, killer slime. Kid Chameleon wipes him out with hair-raising leaps. He scrambles up walls, skates across ceilings, and squeezes through escape holes. With more than 1,850 screens, 103 levels, and loads of secret paths, there's always a way out. And they all lead to the lair of the elsewhere evil meister, Heady Metal. And then, of course, there are a few screenshots on the back of the box as well. And I've got to say, I kind of really like the back of this box. I loved how they made the game almost sound comic booky with some of those sound-based exclamations like blam and crunch. I loved the way they described the game, which was literally like an almost impossible to beat experience. And I know they're talking about the in-game game Wildside, but it's strange how art imitates life because Kid Chameleon itself is truly a kid eater. It would be really difficult for a kid to play this game and beat it. Now, of course, people have, and I did, but albeit not until I was a 42-year-old man. But regardless, it's kind of interesting the way that they describe the internal game, which the game kind of is revolving around, and the game itself. There's definitely analogs there, which I found interesting. 
The screenshots, eh, not so much to write home about. They kind of look okay. I don't know that the graphics on the box would have necessarily sold me, but I will say the description has definitely piqued my interest, and I think I probably would have considered getting this game. I did not get this game when I was a kid. The first time I played it was actually for this podcast. But seeing this box on a store shelf, I probably would have picked it up. Anyway, we're now going to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. Kid Chameleon's graphics are okay, mostly, with a fairly traditional pixel art style and various enemy and level designs that work well within the context of the game. I don't mean to suggest that the game looks bad, it just looks kind of like every other nondescript platformer that you've ever played over the years, which is to say, there's not much here that is visually distinct or worth calling out. I think my favorite part of the visuals is the design of the various power-ups you can pick up, which effectively transforms you entirely into a different form. Those power-ups all look visually interesting, and you can clearly see which form you've acquired simply by looking at your character. I kind of wish the character graphics were a bit larger and more detailed, but for what it was, it worked fine. Environments were another area that the design team did a fairly nice job with. Like I mentioned before, there are a huge number of levels in the game, and many of the levels have distinct visual themes to go along with that overall level variety. I enjoyed the diversity of the level design, but also felt like there could have been better details overall. If I think about the Sega Genesis and I compare Kid Chameleon to a game like Sonic the Hedgehog, which came out a year earlier, there is no comparison. Sonic looked detailed, colors were vibrant and diverse, and the overall experience was visually appealing. I can't say the same thing with Kid Chameleon. Despite being a year older, it looks less advanced than earlier Sega titles. Overall, the visuals were okay, but not great. Moving on to the sound and music, here again, the sound and music was simply okay, but nothing that I would ever listen to outside the game itself. There are no hummable tunes, no catchy melodies, nothing that transcends its place as simple background music for the game. For what it was, it worked fine. It's just not something I would personally praise in any capacity. There's really not much more to say about the sound and music. It exists, it works well enough within the context of the game, and that's pretty much it. In Kid Chameleon, you encounter a foe the likes of which you've never seen. A brand new holographic virtual reality arcade game has been released to the public. An exciting new release with only one caveat. Anyone who plays the game gets sucked into its reality, never to return to the real world again. You, playing as Kid Chameleon, take it upon yourself to leap into the video game with the hopes of defeating the big bad boss of the entire world, Heady Metal, and rescuing all of the kidnapped children once and for all. Overall, this story is pretty standard platformer fare, and I think it worked just fine. There is just enough here to provide a motivation and reason for playing the game, and as platforming titles go, the story here is pretty much par for the course. I will say that I appreciated the overall story setup of being effectively sucked into a game world, but I wish there was more to it than simply playing a bunch of traditional platforming levels. Perhaps if there were some fourth wall breaking kinds of scenarios, this would have resonated even more with me. I feel like there was a missed opportunity here, and while I'm not holding that against the game since I have on many occasions claimed that platforming titles don't really need a strong story to be successful, I do think there was an opportunity to do even more without appreciably more work. The story is fine for what it is, it just could have been more. Moving on to the playability and controls, 
We have talked a good bit about the overall game structure, power-ups, and related items already, so I'm not going to rehash all of that here. What I will say, though, is that the game's interesting mechanics and gameplay elements are, unfortunately, often let down by its controls, which from my perspective are a bit too floaty and led to a number of inaccurate jumps that caused a number of deaths that should have never happened. I did eventually become acclimated to the controls, but even then, I never felt 100% in control of my character. Some of the game's power-ups, by the way, exacerbate that control issue, and in particular, the Micromax form, where you're turned into a fly-sized creature that can cling to walls, can be somewhat challenging to use, especially if you're trying to scale a wall. It's not an insurmountable control scheme, but it is more challenging than it needed to be. I also thought needing to press Start and A to execute your special diamond powers was unnecessarily complex from a dexterity perspective. I admit that I played Kid Chameleon on an emulator, so I did not use a real Genesis controller for this one. Even so, I don't think there's any way pressing Start and A at the same time can be considered natural, and I simply never used the diamond powers as a result. Is it possible some of them were game-changing? Well, maybe, but I'll never know, because the control mechanism to execute the move was laid out poorly. Overall, though, I can wrap my head around the controls, and like I said, I did get used to the control scheme as I played the game. What I cannot forgive is creating a game with 100 plus levels, some of which are very challenging and no way to save your progress, coupled with a finite set of continues that require either luck, extensive practice, or a guide to replenish and accumulate. I cannot impress upon you how frustrating it was to see every one of my continues eaten up by an arbitrarily difficult level, requiring me to start the game over again and proceed through a ton of levels that I had already mastered. If you're simply playing the game for fun, I recommend you use save states to avoid this frustration. But the game as originally designed is definitely lacking here. Just to be clear, you all know I don't mind a challenge, and I actually relish in completing a challenging title in the way it was designed. Kid Chameleon, though, long overstays its welcome, and what starts as an interesting exploration into an alien world devolves into rote memorization, tedium, and at times excessive difficulty spikes. I beat it once, and I can honestly say I have no desire to really play it again. So overall, how did it feel to play Kid Chameleon? Well, for me... I had a bit of a roller coaster ride going on with the game, but ultimately, I just didn't have a ton of fun playing the title. It has its moments, and I think simply adding a password system or some other way to save your progress would have made the entire experience a million times better. As it stands, though, Kid Chameleon was simply too big and without enough respect for players' time to really feel like a worthwhile experience, especially compared to the number of platforming titles that does pretty much everything Kid Chameleon does albeit better, and with less frustration. So our final verdict on Kid Chameleon. Well, I will admit that I seesawed on my final verdict with Kid Chameleon, as for a period of time, I thought there was a chance it would hit Golden Oldie territory. I knew early on that it would never be a Pantheon entry, as it had too many frustrations and bizarre design decisions, like the Bonkers map connections, to be considered a classic. But I thought, hey, maybe it'll reach Golden Oldie status. The more I played, though, the more I began to dislike the experience, until my final playthrough, which was a lifeless affair that I completed simply to say that I beat the game as designed. I checked off that box, and I feel comfortable in never revisiting that checkmark again, which is why, for me, Kid Chameleon is a perfect example of a mediocre mention. 
There is some fun to be had here in spurts, and if you decide to play the game with save states and other modern creature comforts, or you simply just want to sit down and play the game for the heck of it, I think you will absolutely enjoy the game. Adding in any of those additional creature comforts, though, will mask the inherent issues with the original design, and I can't give the game a pass by virtue of modern fixes. Kid Chameleon is not a horrible experience, but it is also certainly not a great one, which is why for me, Kid Chameleon ranks as the newest addition in our list of mediocre mentions. was our episode on Kid Chameleon. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmo.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I also highly encourage everyone to check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, including a Patreon-exclusive bi-weekly podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point-and-click adventure title, Dark Seed. so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts, it's not about trying to harvest a ton of 5-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to get the feedback necessary to make this the best possible podcast I can. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely amazing. I want to make sure that I can continue to deliver the content everybody wants to listen to in the hopes of making this the best possible podcast I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Dark Seed. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.